0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org.
1: Welcome
2: to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In January of 1931, Alexander McClay-Williams became the youngest person ever executed in Pennsylvania. His story is fraught with Jim Crow-era racism, criminal injustice, and short-sighted judicial expediency, a common formula for keeping African-American communities oppressed in pre-war America. Eighty-seven years after his conviction, two Delaware County men have earned a a posthumous exoneration for Williams. Joining us to share this story is Sam Lemon, the great-grandson of Williams' attorney and author of Wrongly Executed, the tale of Williams' short and tragic life. Also with us is Robert Keller, a criminal defense attorney with Keller, Lisgar and Williams. Mr. Keller was instrumental in getting Alexander Williams conviction vacated. Gentlemen, welcome to the program.
3: Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning.
2: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to Smart at WITF. I hate to reduce this to saying it's a fascinating story, but 87 years after the fact, that is one way to to put it. But Sam Lemon, let me start at the, the beginning. Uh, paint a picture of the racial landscape of that region in 1930. You now we're talking about Media, Chester, Aston, the western suburbs of Philadelphia. Was this a tolerant area?
3: Uh you know, uh, yes and no. Um you know, Quakers had uh, long been here uh, in in this particular region. Um, my great-grandfather, uh, William uh, uh, H. Ridley, his parents actually had been runaway slaves uh, from Virginia during the Civil War. Uh, they made it to media, and they were taken in by local Quakers. Um, so, so there was, in, in some ways, a, a great deal of tolerance. But at the same time, on the other side of that, that coin, um, things were um, extremely uh, difficult uh, uh, here at times, and there were uh, significant uh, conflicts uh, in, in race relations. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the KKK showed up at Ridley's house about five years before this case. It was a case of mistaken identity. They were looking for someone else, happened to see somebody go into Ridley's house, and, and showed up in, a, in his backyard uh, as a mob with tortures and, and wearing a hood. So, uh, you know, they, they were both uh, – it was a, a complex, um, you know, uh, social system at that time.
2: I, you know, many people – there was a uh, – uh, reportedly, I don't know whether it actually occurred or not uh, – A rally in southern Lancaster County a few weeks ago but we don't often think of the KKK in the Philadelphia suburbs
3: yeah yeah
2: that's unusual talk about Alexander McClay Williams he was the oldest of 13 children uh, born into poverty his father was an illiterate mushroom picker Uh, the family raised pigs and chickens for food and extra money what was life like prior to his incarceration
3: uh, you know, I think it was probably uh, very difficult. Um, it was, as as you said, a very large family. Uh, you know, uh, they had their own, uh, you know, uh, family and and social problems. Uh, he seemed like he didn't get a lot of attention there. Uh, in addition to the 13 kids and the two parents, there were a couple of boarders living in this uh, big ramshackle uh, house. And um, uh, and I think um, in talking with his his sister, uh, Alexander may have been a victim of of child abuse from one of those boarders so I think he was a kid who was just really needy for attention, uh, began acting out at a very early age by you know uh, breaking into the local post office to steal pennies and, and stamps and, and setting a fire, which uh, turned out to, to uh, cause a, an incredible uh, down, amount of damage, about $25,000 worth in 1926. And that was actually uh, one of the things that got him uh, incarcerated, uh, adjudicated delinquent.
2: Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment, but I want to go back to what you said that you were told by his sister and, and the sister is still alive correct that's correct yeah mm-hmm. now when you say abused by a border are you talking sexually abused
3: yes I am okay
2: that's what that's what I thought there was also an indication that uh, Alexander Williams was developmentally delayed what can you say about that
3: um, I had the privilege of uh, reading his um uh, interview and, and his uh, student records down at the uh, Historical Society of, of Pennsylvania. I was given permission by the school back in 18, uh, 1989 uh, to do that, to view those records and make notes. Um, and it did say that he did read poorly, uh, roughly about uh, an eighth grade level, but he also seemed to have some comprehension uh, problems. And uh, as part of my uh, examination of this case, um, I was able to engage in the services of um, two licensed um, uh, psychologists who were consultants for the Juvenile um, uh, county, uh, Delaware County juvenile court system, who did kind of a forensic evaluation on him, and then they found him to have uh, issues of comprehension and, and understanding, and um, you know, lack of um, uh, the, the kind of um, you know remote detailed. Uh, foresight that, um, you know, would be required for somebody who uh, would, would commit a fairly heinous and, and very complex crime and cover-up.
2: I, I have to say that uh, when I read that you had done that, I thought, boy, you, you really were, were going into this in a comprehensive way, you know, to go back to an 87-year-old case and, uh, you know, show it to uh, modern forensic psychologist. I, mean, it, I, I was just actually even surprised that you were able to do that.
3: Well, you know, I, I you know, uh, the the legal system and, and you know, law and criminal justice have always uh, greatly interested me. You know, in large part because of my uh, great grandfather. Um, but, you know, not being an attorney, I, I feel like I, I was at a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of how to approach this. So I, I used the same approach that I would use for my doctoral dissertation at, at Penn, you know, to do really careful research, you know, uh, detailed examination, uh, you know, information gathering, uh, you know, try and uh, obtain as many uh, vital uh, records as I possibly could. And cause I'm also kind of a um, an amateur genealogist. So all of those skills came together and, uh, you know, helped me do, uh, I think, a, a pretty good uh, study on this case. And then I was absolutely delighted uh, to meet and, and work with uh, Rob Keller, uh, you know, who, who you know is, is the other half of this uh, dynamic duo.
2: And we're going to bring Rob into the uh, conversation here in just a m- minute as we update uh, the, the case. In 1926, at the age of 12, uh, Williams burned down a barn, cost twenty-five thousand dollars yes. in damage. He sent off to the Glen Mills School for Boys. Glen Mills still is there, not called the Glen Mills School for Boys any longer. The idea of a boys' reform school in the pre-war era it conjures up some pretty scary images of abuse what can you tell us about the school at the time
3: Um, it was run like a prison and and the students were called inmates They, they, they weren't called students um, when I uh, visited the, the school back in uh, thousand nine hundred and ninety the uh, school 's archivist uh, gave me a tour of the grounds I particularly wanted to see the the, the scene of the crime uh, where the murder occurred, and also where the uh, alleged uh, murder weapon the the ice pick was hidden um, in a hole in the, in the, in the basement but uh, he told me yeah it it was, it was a very uh, um, uh, the, uh... kind of a, a dangerous and and very difficult place and uh... there was a lot of uh, abuse among the, the students themselves uh... there was kind of this um you know prison mentality the punishment was very severe uh, Alexander had been been flogged a number of times, um, according to court testimony, between uh, 20 and 40 lashes. Um, and sometimes the students, according to um, you know, the archivists, were rented out to local farmers or, or factories. So it, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of a uh, you know Oliver uh, Twist sort of uh, era.
2: Well, and the word flogged is not one you hear associated with punishment uh, very often uh, nowadays. At the school is a house matron, kind of a a dorm mother, Vida Robert, who lived on the campus with her 10-year-old son. Her ex-husband, Fred Robert, also lived and worked on the campus. What can you tell us about their background?
3: Uh, They came from Michigan. And uh, kind of a hard scrabble life, uh, according to um, Fred Robert's uh, great niece, um, who I've been um, uh, in contact with, Teresa Smithers, who, who provided invaluable out-of-state research uh, for me. But uh, the, the Robert's were, were known as uh, kind of a hard-drinking, hard-fighting uh, family of uh, French Canadians, and uh, a number of the Robert brothers uh, went to prison. Um, One of Fred Robert's brothers actually went to prison for 31 years for a uh, bludgeoning murder that occurred during a robbery that he and another gentleman uh, were doing. But, um, you know, Vida Robert, by all uh, reports, was uh, just a wonderful person, uh, you know, a devoted mother. But I think she had a really very hard life uh, back back in Michigan. And their firstborn child, actually, in Michigan um, died the day it was born due to malnutrition. So I think, uh, you know, as an old social worker, I mean, that, that tells me that uh, that family has some serious socioeconomic and and perhaps psychological problems.
2: Wow, yeah, that uh, again, yeah, something you don't hear very often today. Yeah. In 1930, four years into Williams' incarceration, that's what we'll call it, since that's mm-hmm. how they referred to it as well. Yeah. Uh, it was he was scheduled to stay at Glen Mills until his 21st birthday. Yeah. Uh, Alexander is a 16-year-old adolescent. Uh, I understand that uh, he had uh, some disciplinary problems. Um, What kind of uh, disciplinary problems uh, were we talking
3: about? you know lying stealing uh you know misbehaving uh you know things of that nature but um according to to the testimony of the uh, school superintendent um the, he the superintendent the, the would would never designate him as as incorrigible even though uh, that was the reason for the the court's um uh you know adjudication and and placing him there but um you know, his, his his crimes were not really crimes at all. I mean, they were really misdemeanors. Um, so uh, it wasn't like he was, uh, you know, assaulting people. In fact, there's no violence in this kid's background whatsoever. And that was one of the things that, that stood out in the uh, forensic evaluation, that the psychologist said he, he doesn't fit the profile. He, he doesn't seem to have had the, um, you know, that kind of anger and, and deep hatred um, that would warrant, uh, uh, you know, a, a brutal murder where somebody stabbed 47 times with an ice pick.
2: Uh, so let's go to October third, nineteen thirty. Fred Robert goes into his wife Vida's uh, bedroom and finds her dead. She had been murdered. Uh, talk about uh, what had happened.
3: Well, uh, he he gave actually two versions of the story. One uh, to the to the local paper, uh, the Chester Times. Uh, it was called at that time, and, uh, and to the authorities. And as you said, uh, you know, he 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 said he. Uh, uh, came back and actually, he came back with a with a work crew of boys. And the local version was that uh, he said that uh, he gave his key um, to the uh, cottage. And and these cottages, um, because it was run like a prison, they all had doors. They all had self locking doors. Uh, these latching mechanisms, so you couldn't get into a cottage or move about within the the floors of the cottage without keys. But he claims he gave a, a key for some reason to one of the boys open the door, and the boy said, "Gee, the door was already open and then he goes in and, and finds uh, his wife 's body and uh, he says, hey, well, you can imagine uh, how, how I felt." Um, there was a second version, though, in which he wrote a letter to his parents that was quoted in a um, Michigan newspaper in which he said uh, he came back, uh, you know, from working in the fields with the boys. He sat down in the dining room waiting for Vida to come down. Uh, when she didn't come down, and he went upstairs to see if maybe she was asleep or something and then again discovered her body. So he, he gives two, two kind of different versions. But um, the the condition of the room was was extraordinary. The room room was actually fairly pristine, except for for two things. Obviously, you know, a dead woman laying on the floor, um, her ex-husband Fred testified in court it looked like there was uh, you know, 10 gallons of blood uh, on, on her bed, there was a great uh, pool of blood uh, a lamp was knocked over but the only other thing um, in the room was a bloody man's uh, handprint, a left handprint left on the wall by the door that exited uh, the, the bedroom that handprint was uh, examined by two local uh, fingerprint experts, it was photographed by the Pennsylvania State Police the newspapers kept saying you know, this, this is the, the lynch this case, and it was never mentioned again.
2: Hmm. And by the way, we're going to bring uh, Rob Lemon into our conversation in just a few minutes once we uh, get to 2016-2017. Uh, but... Uh, Rob Keller. Rob, yes. did, I say, did I say Lemon? I'm sorry. I We're that, spiritual
3: brothers. I was going to say, it made you
2: sound like the Lemon Brothers or something like that. That's right. Yeah, I, I knew that. I'm sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> uh, before I, I have a break here in just a moment, but uh, uh, Sam Lemon, and Lemon is your last name, uh, describe the events that, that followed, uh, the Williams arrest, the interrogation. He had no legal counsel and offered, and he did offer a confession
3: yes it it, um... i I didn't understand exactly what happened until i read the three hundred-page trial transcript and then all things became clear so um, what happened next was, um, you know, Alexander was out uh, with a work crew uh, himself, uh, and the work supervisor sent him on uh, two errands, actually. Uh, he comes back from those two errands wearing the exact same clothes, not acting unusual. He was gone the same amount of time. But they had uh, created these elimination lists of suspects. And so the school was looking at who was out of supervision at any given time during that, uh, that window between, you know, 1.30 uh, p.m. And, and 5 p.m. when uh, the, the the victim's body uh, was discovered, um, and so the, you know they they kind of came up with uh, you know he, he was one of these um, individuals. But you're right, he was interrogated at least four or five times, possibly more. No parent in the room, no uh, defense attorney. Uh, he initially, uh, you know, uh, denied any knowledge of it didn't vehemently, and it wasn't until the third confession that he finally caved in. Um, but actually, in, in reading the trial transcript, uh, I became aware that the school superintendent who was kind of leading uh, some of these interrogations had been a prison psychologist in Indiana. And he went to great lengths to trick this kid, this learning-disabled kid, uh, to confuse him about, uh, you know, the, the timeline it would happen. And, and uh, he said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if you were seen uh, at, at the cottage at the scene of the crime, which was totally not true, um, and so there was um, a great deal of gaslighting uh, that went on to confuse this kid. And, and as, as you may know, um, in criminal justice, uh, juveniles will often confess to crimes that they did not commit, uh, Central Park 5 being being one group, um, you know, uh, fairly well recognizable, uh, just to get out of trouble, just because they think, oh, yeah this will get sorted out later. So... The kid didn't have a chance. I mean, he was uh, in in this room alone with, uh, you know, school authorities, uh, the um, uh, district attorney uh, of of, uh, Delaware County, um, the the head of the school board, you know, several county detectives. So um, he he really was, um, you know, just a a victim of, um, uh, you know, wrongdoing.
2: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org.
2: We're talking with Sam Lemon, author of Wrongly Executed, the tale of Alexander Williams' short and tragic life. He was the youngest person executed in Pennsylvania. Also joining us is Robert Keller, a criminal defense attorney with Keller Lisgar and Williams. We'll talk with Mr. Keller and how he got involved in this case in just a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. It is a fascinating story, so I understand if you're uh, just sitting back and listening to this story. This isn't something that happened in the Deep South. This is right here in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. All right. uh, And, Sam, let me talk to you for a few more minutes about uh, Alexander Williams. Um, Around the point that uh, Alexander Williams was arrested, uh, your great-grandfather, the first African-American admitted to the Delaware County Bar, took up the case. Let's talk about the trial. An all-white jury, an aggressive prosecutor, a hostile judge.
3: Uh, Well, actually, um, Mr. Ridley was not – he was appointed by the court to represent Alexander, but not until over two weeks after Alexander had made his third signed confession. So he began this trial hobbled. Uh, and I think that was really part of the uh, you know uh, part of the plan that he was there basically for window dressing um, they didn 't want him to do anything um, but um you know in reading the court uh, the trial transcript uh, he he was Noticing that there there were there was evidence being uh, introduced at, at trial of the woman's bloody, bloody clothes, photographs of the crime scene that he had not seen, and he's saying, "Hey, wait a minute, what wh- what is this? What, you know, who who took these photographs?" Um, so apparently there there wasn't even any discovery process uh, that had gone on. And um, as I said, the the prosecution um, you know did a great job in, in uh... establishing this case before Ridley even came on board, because again the, the kid had signed three confessions. And if you read the confessions, each one is a little more detailed, a little more lurid, uh, a little less like how an adolescent would talk uh, than the one before. And the confession uh, was obtained illegally because uh, when Ridley brought this this issue up in the court, in terms of how did they how did they obtain this third confession? One of the county detectives said, "Well, you know, I went to the prison and got him and, and took him to the DA's office." And Ridley said, "Well, did you tell the magistrate why you were removing him? Uh, because he had been uh, held on on a writ uh, of habeas corpus in prison, only to be removed to attend another hearing." And the detective says, uh, "No, I didn't tell the magistrate uh, why I was removing him." And at that point, the judge jumps in. Yeah, the DA objects, and the judge jumps in and says, "Well, what materiality has this? You know, suppose it be true. Suppose it be true. So what?" Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, today, you know, the, that would not fly. I mean, Rob now, Keller is can tell you better than I.
2: Yeah, well, it's, and, uh, you know, maybe it's a good time to remind people that we had the same Constitution and Bill of Rights at uh, in 1930, 1931, as we have today. Exactly. So, uh, you know, something else that I wanted to talk about with uh, Alexander Williams' background, uh, the victim... Um, Vita Robert and Fred Robert when we were talking about their background something we didn't discuss is that uh, you know Alexander Williams knew you know both of these people obviously yes. from being in Glen Mills yes. but the stories that you were able to uh, uh, obtain is that the victim treated him very well yes. and the husband Fred Robert did not
3: that's absolutely correct yeah, uh, Alexander had actually lived in their cottage, cottage number five, at one time, and he asked to be removed because Fred Robert kept abusing him. Uh, he he uh, his, his testimony, which was he didn't testify at trial, it was read into court based on uh, his his interrogations. But he said Fred would kick him around on the floor and knock the wind out of him, and then Vita would come out and, and intervene uh, and try to make him stop, and then Fred would hit her. So, yeah, this was a kid who, who had a protector. Um, and, you know, so he he's attending this rough reform school, um, and he's got this one person who, like, you know, you know totally uh, care, seems to care about him and intervenes on his behalf. Uh, he's the la- you know, she is the last person he, he would ever consider murdering, I would think.
2: And Fred Robert and uh, Vida Robert were divorced like 10 years previously, and you were able to find uh, the divorce decree where... Uh, She said that extreme cruelty was the reason behind that. Now, you know, I don't know whether that's still a cause for, I mean, I don't know whether those words are still used, I guess, is what I'm saying when it comes to divorces. But that sounds like there was some physical abuse, too.
3: I I would think so. And, and again, as I said, um, the the couple's uh, first uh, born child was born, uh, died the day she was born uh, from malnutrition, which also tells me that the mother must have been malnourished. Uh, about a year later, they had a second child who, who died under, uh, you know, uh, some medical problems. So, yeah, you, you have this, this young couple, and, and you have two children who die uh, within 18 months uh, of each other. And um, they obviously had some very severe uh, economic problems, uh, some physical abuse uh, in there. So this, this was a troubled uh, couple, and uh, it seems unfortunate because when Vida kind of finally made it here, and she had worked at two other schools in the area, she had a sterling reputation. She was very well respected. Uh, she apparently was a very bright and hardworking and talented person. She had written poetry. She had w- written some words to a song, which I was actually able to track down through the Library of Congress and include in, in the book. Um, so she seemed like uh, you know somebody who was finally in control of her life and, and on the way up, and she had this albatross of this uh, brutal husband or ex-husband uh, hanging around her neck, and and it was a fatal mistake for her to allow him to to re- rejoin her and her son.
2: Alexander Williams was found guilty, um, and then the state executed a 16-year-old boy in the electric chair. I mean, talk about the reaction from the white community, the black community, the media. I mean, how was this all uh, discussed?
3: Well, it's very interesting. The the, the local um, papers uh... covered it in great great detail and because the associated press picked up the story this story flashed all around the country so it got as far away as you know mississippi and michigan and idaho um... santa monica california texas alberta canada so this was a big deal, this case was, was, was a very big deal. Um, and it's interesting when you read two, uh, there, there are two versions of his le- final moments, one in the local paper which says that uh, he conferred with a prison chaplain and then walked to the to the death chamber uh, without the slightest show of emotion. Uh, however the, the Reading Eagle uh, paper uh, which is about 50 miles from here said that he was sobbing uncontrollably and had to be carried into the death chamber by guards. I think that's probably you know more more the the, uh, the 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 truer of the two accounts but I think that um it was such a heinous uh, unprecedented crime that that I think the authorities wanted to solve it Im- immediately and uh, and and to get uh, you know wh- whoever they thought uh, was available or you know uh, whoever they could who could choose and um so, uh, you know, the it's interesting. I, so I would say, yeah, probably the white community was very well satisfied. The African-American community um, really was, was upset with my great-grandfather because they thought that he should have gotten this kid off. Um, and, and later in, in the case, they actually hired a white attorney who didn't fare any better. Uh, he had tried to appeal to the State Board of uh, Pardons and Parole but um, so it, it was a case that um, you know, really inflamed the um, the racial conflicts uh, of, in an area where they were already very tense uh, at times.
2: The death certificate uh, clearly shows that uh, Alexander Williams' age had been altered from <laughs> yes. 16 to 18.
3: Yes.
2: It almost sounds like the state was embarrassed that they executed a 16-year-old kid. What was behind that?
3: You know, I, I have no idea. I, I, you know, when I saw that, it it really jumped out at me. Uh, particularly since whoever did that clumsy forgery job uh, forgot to change the birth year, so it's matched up sure. with the age. So
2: somebody um, real smart too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the same uh, was true. There was evidence tampering with Vita Robert's death certificate. Uh, at, at some point, uh, somebody in a different handwriting, it was not the coroner who, who filed the, the form on October 4th, uh, said uh, "You know, her death was uh, uh, due to an ice pick in the hands of Alexander McLean Williams. So what's interesting is this, this state-required form was, was filed on October 4th. Alexander didn't make his first confession until October 7th. So either those folks had ESP, they they knew three days in advance he was going to confess, or somebody altered that form after the fact. You know, who and, and when that was done, I, I don't know.
2: So that brings us to Robert Keller. He's a criminal defense attorney with Keller, Lisgar and Williams in Havertown. Uh, Mr. Keller, how did this story appear on your radar?
1: Well, good morning. Good
2: morning. Um, I, I hate to have you sitting there for so long, but kind of found chronologically here.
1: No, but I I, um, enjoy hearing uh, Dr. Lemon, and it's such an intriguing story. It's uh, worth the wait. Um, I'm a former prosecutor uh, here in Delaware County, and I'm also a present uh, board member of the Delaware County Bar Association. And in 2015, um, uh, William Baldwin, who's the executive director of the Bar Association, approached me after Dr. Lemon came to him uh, asking if I'd be willing to meet with Dr. Lemon and see if there's anything I could do uh, to help uh, Alexander's cause.
2: So what part of uh, Alexander Williams' story resonated with
1: you? Well, I'm a father and um, a lawyer, and when I heard uh, uh, Dr. Lemon's uh, um, compassionate story about his great-grandfather and the injustice to this uh, uh, child, uh, it, it was something I had to... Uh, to learn more about and, and see if there's anything I could do to help.
2: You know, it's it's been my experience and observation that uh, many times prosecutors, uh, you know, they're a little bit, um, I don't know, cynical sometimes. So how do you, how did you, I'm, I'm sure there were some things at first that when you probably went into this is like, okay, you kind of have to prove to me that this young man was was innocent. I mean, what was your mindset going in? Sure.
1: Um, I wasn't really focused focusing in on whether the uh, child was innocent or not, I was focusing in to see whether justice was served, whether the child was afforded a fair uh, representation and, and a fair trial. And it was, it was abundantly clear from the beginning that uh, uh, his lawyer was uh, uh, handicapped dramatically in representing him and the system uh, failed miserably in, uh, in prosecuting this case. So that was my focus. And uh, um and that's, uh, and that was borne out.
2: What, what stuck out to you as being unjust in the case?
1: So uh, Mr. Ridley was given uh, less than three months to prepare a capital murder case, number one. Number two, he wasn't provided with uh, any assistance. He didn't have any uh, uh, money uh, provided for, uh, for expert witnesses, for uh, co-counsel. I mean, in today's world... Uh, typically, in capital murder cases, there's trial counsel and then there's uh, sentencing counsel. Uh, uh, the courts pay for uh, experts uh, to evaluate the, uh, the defendant to determine whether there's any um, mental infirmity. To uh, have a uh, investigator uh, hired to to investigate the crime scene and to see if there's any defenses. I mean, none of that was afforded this child. So, uh, Mr. Ridley was given very little time to prepare a defense. He may not have even been uh, provided with discovery. Uh, the trial was uh, uh took place uh, in january uh of 1931 just uh, you know like 53 days after uh, he had been brought into the trial uh the case the trial lasted two days and uh it was over and then uh less than uh, uh 6 months later the boy was uh executed so it was a travesty
2: w- what steps were necessary to Uh, exonerate Alexander's name. I mean, did you get any any kind of pushback with
1: it? So initially I had to or wanted to secure the trial transcript and uh, it mysteriously uh, disappeared uh, in the uh, in the the bowels of the the Delaware County Courthouse. Uh, It it disappeared. So I had to file a petition with the court and seek the uh, uh, the help of our judges uh, to, to even find the uh, transcript that Dr. Lemmon had read, uh, uh, and then the thing disappeared. So uh, with the help of the court, I was able to, uh, uh, they were able to find this uh, transcript. I was able to read it, copy it. I was able to uh, find the docket book, and, and, and which uh, outlined in great detail the timeline of uh, the procedural history, uh, and once I read that, um, it, it was very clear, um, you know, the injustice that, that occurred, uh, you know, back in 1930 for this child.
2: You know, you, when you say that uh, the, the transcript had disappeared, I mean, it almost sounds like there's someone ominous there. I mean, was it just misplaced or what?
1: Well, that's what they claim, and um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to take them at their word, but... Uh, uh, so uh, you know that that did uh, set up a, a red flag, and I was very concerned that maybe um, uh, the system didn't want this uh, uh, dark tale of, of our county to be uh, to be witnessed or to be analyzed. Uh, but I, I didn't get that feeling from from the courts, and uh, um, uh, so you know once. Um, Once I was able to analyze it, uh, I was able to, uh, with with Sam's help, uh, we put on a uh, uh, numerous seminar throughout the county. We also made a presentation to the lawyers in our county. Uh, I was also uh, offered the opportunity to write about it in in the uh, local uh, legal paper, which I did do, and Sam also wrote a great article. Uh, There was some uh, pushback when I ultimately was filing for an expungement for, for this child, uh, there was initially uh, a position being taken by the, the Delaware County District Attorney's Office that seemed to be more of a, uh, of a procedural versus really uh, a factual basis to uh, to deny what I was seeking. So after meeting with the the District Attorney, uh, Jack Whalen, and, and uh, explaining what we were seeking, uh, and then uh, finally getting some help from the, the trial judge, who the, trial, the judge who was actually there to make the decision about the expungement. Uh, we were able, obviously, evidently, I mean, to, to uh, finally secure the expungement for the child.
2: An eighty-five-year-old case that there's even some pushback. That's that, that's that's a, that's hard to believe almost. But all right. So when you said you got the expungement, obviously there wasn't a trial. There are no witnesses. There's no new evidence. How are you able to obtain that expungement? All
1: right. Well, I think there was some uh, public relations aspect to this. Uh, number one, uh, I think there's. You have to go back to the. the investigation and the trial. Uh, This handprint to me, uh, it was crucial to the case. uh, And the local newspapers were talking when they interviewed the investigators, they said that they were going to uh, take all the prints of of all the employees, all the students, uh, anyone who could have possibly had contact with the victim. uh, And it appears that that was never done. uh, And for some reason, it never came up during the trial. So that really concerned me. Uh, Secondly, these confessions by this this child uh, came out through testimony uh, that the uh, superintendent was intending to confuse this child and even testified in a bragging sort of way that that was his intent. So you have uh, missing evidence, you have a forced confession, you have a, a, a... uh, defense lawyer who was inadequate or was did not have the tools to properly represent this child, a very quick resolution of a, of a conviction, and then and then being put to death. And no appeal was taken. I mean, uh, Sam was talking about the, this white lawyer filed for a, a pardon, or, uh, but never took the case to the appellate court. Mm-hmm. So that was never done. So with that background, uh, it was easier for me to, to make the case that, that, that something was wrong here. Uh, then I was able to fi- find in the expungement law that says that three years after a person's death, you can seek an expungement. Now, the irony here is that uh, Alexander didn't die of natural causes. He was put to death by the government, uh, and the expungement statute doesn't say specifically you know, how the person died. It just says three years after a person's death, you can pursue a uh, expungement, and obviously— uh, Well over three years has uh, uh, expired since uh, Alexander's death. So on that technical basis, uh, I think the the court and the prosecutor realized that uh, uh, from a PR perspective and and the technical language of the statute that uh, an expungement was appropriate for this child.
2: Uh, Gentlemen, I want to ask both of you the the same question. Uh, Eighty-seven years after the fact... Uh, why pursue this? And uh, Sam Lemon, I mean, you wrote a book about it. You have uh, your great-grandfather was the lawyer involved in this case. But why did you decide to, I mean, you obviously put a lot of work into pursuing this. Why do it?
3: Well, you you know, when I first heard this story as a a child from my grandmother, who was uh, Mr. Ridley's uh, daughter, um, it, it, it just stuck with me. It really haunted me. Um, and And I could never forget it. Uh, I could never let it go and as I grew up, I began to you know uh, slowly gather research and and um i I just had this burning desire to know at the beginning why would this kid do such a heinous crime but then as uh, you know time went on, it became clear and clear to me that um he he, he couldn 't have done this crime he couldn 't possibly uh, have done this crime, so you know part of it maybe uh began as as a matter of family honor, wanting to know why uh My great-grandfather, who was, uh, by all accounts of the local legal community, a great attorney, um, a practicing attorney for 54 years, Um, why would he lose one of the most important cases? of his entire career and um, again as as, uh, time went on after I gathered a great deal of research uh, it it just uh, compelled me even more uh, to bring this this case to light in part because and and I think this is one of the reasons why the the Delaware County Bar has been so supportive is this is kind of a cautionary tale that has great implications for uh, the the legal system today uh, the way juveniles are handled and you see almost every uh, week uh, there's a case in the the papers about uh, some kid being exonerated or or, or, you know, sentence being reduced, or the issue of, you know, should juveniles uh, be sentenced to to, to life imprisonment? So um, it it does have uh, great implications uh, for what uh, is going on.
2: Rob, Rob, let me ask you the same question. Uh, Sure. You know, why take on an 85-year-old case and uh, uh, seek the expungement?
1: Well, as Sam's indicating, uh, this is is very timely, and we cannot... uh, uh, hide behind uh, uh, the age of the case. I mean, it's important for uh, the residents of our county to know the history, to learn from the uh, the terrible circumstances that occurred back then um, and to not allow it to happen again. So uh, I felt it was very important to educate the public and to uh, step up to the plate and, and to, to, to give our, our courts really uh an opportunity to to in a very small way redress something that uh that terrible happened uh, and and with, with the irony I guess is that the it was right down the hall from where the boy was uh, found guilty to the courtroom where we uh got a, got the case expunged so uh in a small way uh you know with with the child's uh, sister still living I thought it important uh, not only to to address it to the public, but also to address the family, to have the family's voice heard, and for for, for the sister to be able to to hear, to see that the, the courts have acknowledged in a small way uh, the tragedy and, and the injustice that occurred, and and uh, uh, that there was some some acknowledgement of the wrongdoing
2: the name of the book is wrongly executed written by sam lemon and rob keller is uh, the attorney who got alexander williams uh, record expunged gentlemen fascinating story thank you very much for being with us today
3: scott, Our pleasure. Could I, scott are you there yes can i just give you the official title of the book yes the case that shocked the country.
2: Okay, so there is more to it than wrongly executed. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right, thank you very much for being with us Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A sinkhole opened in front of the new firehouse in Palmyra on Memorial Day. It's one of many in the Lebanon County community over the years. It's been an ongoing issue. There's even a tavern in town called the Sinkhole Saloon. Uh, there's another sinkhole on a street in Harrisburg that has kept residents out of their homes for the last two years. These holes in the earth are something of a problem in the region. And joining us to discuss these geological events is Bill uh, Bill Kachanoff, who is a senior geologic scientist with the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. He authored the 2015 report, Sinkholes in Pennsylvania. Mr. Kachanoff, welcome to the program. Thank you for ha- having me. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, what uh, what is a sinkhole? Well,
4: um, sinkholes, uh, depends what definition you use. Uh, for geologists, sinkholes are just part of a... A natural process. Uh, certain rocks, in this case limestone, is more easily dissolved away than others. And through this dissolving away over long periods of time creates openings or voids underground. So then we start to think about sinkholes themselves. Well, you know, you go out, you see the hole in the ground, and so you know, say, okay, where did everything go? So in order to have that, you have to have some other opening down in the subsurface where that stuff gets moved to. So, so that's one of the criteria. Second, you have to have something to move it there, and water is usually the the medium that moves the material from there down into this other opening. But uh, so that leads into um, how how you know what what can cause those things. Well, there are subsidence can occur through uh, subsurface mining. You're removing material down underneath, and obviously you can get subsidence that way. Uh, Second way, uh, just through being in uh, limestone areas. And the third way, uh, this is more common, is uh, simply just from constructional relic materials. Those are things that are uh, left buried in the ground that either decompose or deteriorate over time, creating openings underground. uh, And then uh, they they collapse and create uh, holes at the surface. Sort of like, you know, if you had an old septic tank. Out in the back, you didn't know about it. And over time, it deteriorated right away, and the hole opened up. It's a hole. It's a sinkhole. Well, sort of.
2: Mm-hmm. For us laymen, many times we see the hole and right away say it's a sinkhole. You look at it a little bit differently. When you said in this case, uh, were you talking about Palmyra? Um, it it can
4: uh, occur uh, in different ways. and It just depends on, on, again, where you're at. I get calls all the time from the general public, and it's almost, oftentimes a detective type of, you know, where do you live? You know, seeing if they're underlain by limestone or not. Are they in a coal mining area? Those sorts of things. So you have to sort of filter the call down to, oh, by the way, we had an old shed out in the backyard that got torn down, but the foundation was left in, and, you know, that caused a problem. Mm-hmm surely within certain areas of Pennsylvania, sinkholes are more prevalent in other areas. Uh, Palmyra being in that belt of limestone that extends from Allentown, Bethlehem area all the way down, uh, sort of arcing its way through Harrisburg, down through Carlisle, Shippensburg, and down into Maryland and continues. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you say, does it apply? Yeah, it can. You know, there. That's sometimes where the problem uh Uh, gets compounded is that you have infrastructure failure, the source of the water, and you're also in a limestone area where the natural processes of sinkhole formation have been going on for a long time.
2: So in in Palmyra's case, and I'm not just going to focus on Palmyra, I mentioned, uh, I believe it's 18th Street in Harrisburg, where there's a huge sinkhole that opened and the residents still aren't there because it's just not safe to go back into those homes uh when it, look at those i mean without say construction pipes water sewer all those things would those things naturally occur in palmyra or harrisburg
4: yes you do get the uh, the naturally occurring sinks you know these processes are going on all the time um it's just a matter of uh, sometimes in uh, as urbanization uh, occurred over time uh, water Pathways have changed. Uh, stormwater drainage has been moved from this spot to this spot, sometimes into areas where it normally would not go. And so sometimes that compounding of uh, development uh, can exacerbate uh, the situation and cause things to open in areas that, well, they may not have formed there. But, you know, in uh, in a natural sense, they would have formed, but that's the time variable that, that uh, sometimes gets uh, thrown out there. And, uh You know, we can sometimes accelerate that uh, time lapse type of uh, sinkhole formation simply through the uh, modification of where water goes.
2: Uh, President Trump, I understand, is going to be in Ohio today uh, to announce an infrastructure improvement plan. Politics aside, we know that we have an aging infrastructure in this country. Pennsylvania, especially, has an aging infrastructure. Does that contribute to this?
4: Well, yeah, you got to think about it. You know, if you have a six-inch water line under pressure, and it's been in the ground for 50, 60, 70 years, and it's been made of cast iron. Well, iron rust, you know, and you can start developing uh, leaks, and, uh, and when under pressure, you know, it can— Uh, sort of compound itself over time you know and as it leaks it flushes more and more soil down if there's a a, a, an opening or a void nearby well it's going to move that material into that and again as it undermines the pipes it weakens it creating more leaks and perhaps uh, feeding the sink so to speak
2: what kind of planning goes into this and I'm going to ask this two ways Today, what kind of planning when there was construction? We're building, a, a, say, a housing development, or you know, just updating the uh, the infrastructure underground. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure that the planning is a little bit different than what it was, or maybe a lot different than what it was eighty, hundred years ago when some of these pipes went into the ground. But talk about today, and then compare to uh, th- those years ago
4: well you know years ago you started you know you think about uh people moving into areas and and developing residential neighborhoods you know the uh, the limestone areas typically flat good places to put roads railroads and that's where cities sprung up you know and sometimes the thought process didn't really include the potential for sink development you know so um we're sort of past that point, you know. We have established communities now that are are in these areas and uh, sort of retroactively having to deal with problems that they may not have been aware of from the founding fathers coming forward. So when we look at uh, how do we uh, sort of retrofit our our infrastructure to that, um, well, there are different materials to use. You know, the cast iron. Oh, why not flexible piping? So perhaps if it got undermined, it wouldn't break. But, you know, that's where the municipal codes and zoning ordinances come in as guidelines for development. And those are, uh, you know, perhaps a little bit different in limestone areas where there is a potential for sink development. So, you know, you kind of rely on uh, what works, what doesn't work, you know. And, and usually engineering uh, practices uh, have evolved over the past, oh, geez, 30, 30 years here with regard to sink uh uh, development and uh how to remediate those issues and uh you know reinforce footers as another one you know if you're building a house let's put rebar in the in the yeah. footer you know just if something did open you know the foundation spans the opening and and sometimes
2: protects that are there times though where uh, a project is maybe uh, rejected because the ground is not stable yes, I
4: mean that happens you know because uh it's it, you know those go before. You know, uh, uh, a scrutiny by the municipal authorities, you know, and at the same time, they have to recognize the fact that, oh, well, hey, you're in a limestone area and limestone areas get sinkholes. What safeguards are you including in your proposal to um, minimize any impact that may have on the development? And once you're out of the picture afterwards, you know, if a hole opens up and you're long gone, you know, we're left over to it's basically take. Uh, pick up the tab, you know. So sometimes it's it's it's, it's long term planning, also.
2: Yeah, I wonder about the danger of of sinkholes. I mean, the uh, one that uh, recently got uh, the most attention. I mean, we have ours locally, but nationally, the one that got the most attention was in Tampa, where I, I believe the gentleman's name was uh, Jeff Fisher, uh, Jeff Bush. That's it. Uh, who the guy was asleep, and in the middle of the night, a huge sinkhole opened under his house his body has never been recovered i mean obviously the answer to the question is yes they're dangerous but how often does something like that happen uh in pennsylvania it
4: and, you know i don't believe it has happened where someone uh has fallen down into a hole and you know, i fell into a couple but it was just oh, from, really? from clumsiness but that that's and another and you live is to a, tell it you're yes. here today yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not something you recommend people to do down out into sinks, <laughs> but uh to answer your question that as far as a safety thing goes, you know most sinks are relatively small. I have seen sinks that have swallowed up basements. You know you go open the door and the basement's gone. you know, so there are potentials, but typically they don't go uh they're they're not that deep. The one in Florida, I think was like over sixty oh, foot that was that was, that was deep, huge. I think so yeah. Yeah. But but you're right. The, there is the the safety issue is a primary concern. You've got concerns with utilities, gas lines, and things like that. Where I think there was an incident in uh, uh, bordering New Jersey, where that fra- uh, compromised a gas line and. And the house blew up, you know that sort
2: of thing. So, yeah, that and that brings up another point. You talked about the, uh, you know, the earth being disturbed. Uh, we've heard a lot in recent years about uh, fracking here in Pennsylvania, also about pipelines. Uh, any potential for those to create sinkholes? Uh,
4: not so much in the in the fracking thing. That is usually uh, the depths are much deeper. They're not uh, geologically in the same areas, you know. So. Th- Not so much there, you know. I Mm -hmm. would just throw that one out. The pipelines, there's consideration for, um, you know, is there potential for sinks to compromise a pipeline? There's always that, uh, uh, again, uh, that potential. But you think about the, uh, again, the engineering, there are uh, techniques to use beforehand to determine what's underground. Uh, There are electrical uh, testing type instruments that can analyze what's beneath the surface without even having to dig. So those things are usually put into that perspective. And a lot of legwork goes into uh, the uh, determination of where to put a structure uh, based on, uh, you know, a lot of preliminary uh, testing and things like that. So, you know, and, and, you know, again, you got to think of water as being being the trigger in all of this, you know. And so – keeping water away from from structures to you know or uh you know but you can't outrule the hurricane agnes type of event where you get over a foot of rain at you know over a couple day period and kind of all bets are off but those are things to to plan for though you know you and, can
2: never say never It's basically what you're saying correct yeah we only have about a minute left sure. i want to thank you very much for being with us something i've always wondered about and i don't know whether this fall Falls into uh, your area of expertise, but who pays for this? You know, when I, when I hmm. see that, you know, there's a sinkhole opening Palmyra in Palmyra and Harrisburg, I always wonder who's picking up the bill for that.
4: Yeah, well, it depends. Uh, um, sometimes the municipality has to pick up the tab if it's within their jurisdiction. If it's on private property, well, then it kind of falls to the homeowner. Uh, typically, the sinkhole uh, uh, in in home and homeowners insurance isn't typically covered, so it's good to uh, review, uh, you know, check your policy to see if, if it is included in your coverage. You know, particularly if you're in a limestone area, a lot of times it isn't, and it's a separate rider uh, policy that you have to get to to include that. So it's, yes. So. Mm.
2: Bill Kachanoff is a senior geologic scientist with the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. He authored the 2015 report, Sinkholes in Pennsylvania. Thank you very much, Bill, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, uh, we talk about a new state agency charged with studying rare diseases and also the Pennsylvania State Museum's Art of the State exhibit.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at PinnacleHealth.org quality.